0: chapter 18 of merton of the movies this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org merton of the movies by harry leon wilson chapter 18 five reels 500 laughs it occurred to him the next morning that he might have taken too lightly sarah's foreboding of illness REVIEWING HER CURIOUS BEHAVIOR, HE THOUGHT IT POSSIBLE SHE MIGHT BE IN FOR SOMETHING SERIOUS. BUT A midday TELEPHONE CALL AT THE MONTAGUE HOME BROUGHT ASSURANCES FROM THE MOTHER THAT QUIETED THIS FEAR. SARAH COMPLAINED OF NOT FEELING WELL, AND WAS GOING TO SPEND A QUIET DAY AT HOME. BUT MRS. MONTAGUE WAS CERTAIN IT WAS NOTHING SERIOUS. NO, SHE HAD NO TEMPERATURE, NO FEVER AT ALL. SHE WAS JUST HAVING A SPELL OF THINKING ABOUT THINGS, SORT OF GROUCHY-LIKE. She had been grouchy to both her parents. Probably because she wasn't working. No, she said she wouldn't come to the telephone. She also said she was in a bad way and might pass out any minute. But that was just her kidding. It was kind of Mr. Gill to call up. He wasn't to worry. He continued to worry, however, until the nearness of his screen debut drove Sarah to the back of his mind. Undoubtedly it was just her nonsense and in the meantime that long, baffled wish to see himself in a serious drama was about to be gratified in fullest measure. He was glad the girl had not suggested that she be with him on this tremendous occasion. He wanted to be quite alone, solitary in the crowd, free to enjoy his own acting without pretense of indifference. The Pattersons, of course, were another matter. He had told them of his approaching debut, and they were making an event of it. They would attend, though he would not sit with them. Mr. Patterson in his black suit, his wife in Society Raiment, would sit downstairs and would doubtless applaud their lodger, but he would be remote from them, in a far corner of the topmost gallery, he first thought, for Hearts on Fire was to be shown in one of the big downtown theatres where a prominent member of its cast could lose himself. He had told the Pattersons a little about the story. It was pretty pathetic in spots, he said, but it all came right in the end, and there were some good western scenes. When the Pattersons said he must be very good in it, he found himself unable to achieve the light fashion of denial and protestation that would have become him. He said he had struggled to give the world something better and finer. For a moment he was moved to confess that Mrs. Patterson, in the course of his struggles, had come close to losing ten dollars— but he mastered the wild impulse. Some day, after a few more triumphs, he might laughingly confide this to her. The day was long. Slothfully it dragged hours that seemed endless across the company of shining dreams that he captained. He was early at the theatre, first of all early comers, and entered quickly forgoing even a look at the huge lithographs in front that would perhaps show his very self in some gripping scene. With an empty auditorium to choose from, he compromised on a balcony seat. Down below would doubtless be other members of the company, probably Baird himself, and he did not wish to be recognized. He must be alone with his triumph. And the loftier gallery would be too far away. The house filled slowly people sauntered to their seats as if the occasion were ordinary, even when the seats were occupied and the orchestra had played, there ensued the annoying delays of an educational film and a travelogue. Upon this young actor's memory would be forever seared the information that the conger eel lays fifteen million eggs at one time, and that the inhabitants of Upper Burma have quaint native pastimes. These things would stay with him, but they were unimportant." Even the prodigal fecundity of the conger eel left him cold. He gripped the arms of his seat when the cast of hearts on fire was flung to the screen. He caught his own name instantly and was puzzled. Clifford Armitage, by himself. Someone had bungled that, but no matter. Then at once he was seeing that first scene of his— As a popular screen idol, he breakfasted in his apartment, served by a valet who was a hero-worshipper. He was momentarily disquieted by the frank adoration of the cross-eyed man in this part. While acting the scene, he remembered now that he had not always been able to observe his valet. There were moments when he seemed over-emphatic. The valet was laughed at the watcher's sympathy went out to Baird, who must be seeing his serious effort taken too lightly. There came the scene where he looked at the photograph-album. But now his turning of the pages was interspersed with close-ups of the portraits he regarded so admiringly, and these astonishingly proved to be enlarged stills of Clifford Armitage, the art studies of Lowell Hardy. It was puzzling. On the screen he capably beamed the fondest admiration, almost reverent in its intensity, and there would appear the still of Merton bidding an emotional farewell to his horse. The very novelty of it held him for a moment—Gashwiler's Dexter actually on the screen. He was aroused by the hearty laughter of an immense audience. "'It's Parmalee,' announced a horse-neighbour on his right. "'He's imitatin' Harold.' "'Say, the kid's clever!' The laughter continued during the album scene. He thought of Baird, somewhere in that audience, suffering because his play was made fun of. He wished he could remind him that scenes were to follow which would surely not be taken lightly. For himself he was feeling that at least his strong likeness to Parmalee had been instantly admitted. They were laughing, as the Montague girl had laughed that first morning, because the resemblance was so striking.' but now on the screen, after the actor's long, fond look at himself, came the words, The Only Man He Ever Loved. Laughter again. The watcher felt himself grow hot. Had Baird been betrayed by one of his staff? The scene with the letters followed. Clothes baskets of letters. His own work, as he opened a few from the top, was all that he could have wished. He was finally Harold Parmalee, and again the hoarse neighbor whispered, "'Ain't he got Parmalee dead, though!' "'Poor silly little girls!' the screen exclaimed, and the audience became noisy. Undoubtedly it was a tribute to his perfection in the Parmalee manner, but he was glad that now there would come some acting at which no one could laugh. There was the delicatessen shop, the earnest young cashier, and his poor old mother who mopped. He saw himself embrace her and murmur words of encouragement, but incredibly there were giggles from the audience, doubtless from base souls who were impervious to pathos. The giggles coalesced to a general laugh when the poor old mother, again mopping on the floor, was seen to say, "'I hate these mopping mothers. You get took with housemaid's knee in the first reel.' Again he was seized with a fear that one of Baird's staff had been clumsy with subtitles. His eyes flew to his own serious face when the silly words had gone. The drama moved. Indeed, the action of the shadows was swifter than he supposed it would be. The dissolute son of the proprietor came on to dust the wares and to elicit a laugh when he performed a bit of business that had escaped Merton at the time. Against the wire-screen that covered the largest cheese on the counter, he placed a placard, Dangerous, Do Not Annoy. Probably Baird had not known of this clowning. And then there came another subtitle that would dismay Baird when the serious young bookkeeper enacted his scene with the proprietor's lovely daughter, for she was made to say, You love above your station. Ours is 125th Street. You get off at fifty-ninth." he was beginning to feel confused a sense of loss of panic smote him his own part was the intensely serious thing he had played but in some subtle way even that was being made funny he could not rush to embrace his old mother without exciting laughter the robbery of the safe was effected by the dissolute son the father broke in upon the love scene discovered the loss of his money and accused an innocent man Merton felt that he here acted superbly. His long look at the girl for whom he was making the supreme sacrifice brought tears to his own eyes, but still the witless audience snickered. Unobserved by the others, the old mother now told her son the whereabouts of the stolen money, and he saw himself secure the paper sack of bills from the ice-box. He detected the half-guilty look of which he had spoken to Baird. Then he read his own incredible speech— I'd better take this cool million. It might get that poor lad into trouble. Again the piece had been hurt by a wrong subtitle. But perhaps the audience laughed because it was accustomed to laugh at Baird's productions. Perhaps it had not realized that he was now attempting one of the worthwhile things. This reasoning was refuted as he watched what occurred after he had made his escape. His flight was discovered— policemen entered. A rapid search behind counters ensued. In the course of this the wire screen over the biggest cheese was knocked off the counter. The cheese leaped to the floor, and the searchers, including the policemen, fled in panic through the front door. The Montague girl, the last to escape, was seen to announce, THE BIG CHEESE IS LOOSE! IT'S EATING ALL THE LITTLE ONES! A band of intrepid firemen, protected by masks and armed with axes, rushed in. A terrific struggle ensued. The delicatessen shop was wrecked, and through it all the old mother continued to mop the floor. Merton Gill, who had first grown hot, was now cold. Icy drops were on his chilled brow. How had hearts on fire gone wrong? Then they were in the great open spaces of the Come All Ye Dance-Hall there was the young actor in his buck benson costume protecting his mother from the brutality of a mexican getting his man later by firing directly into a mirror baird had said it would come right in the exposure but it hadn't and the witless cackled he saw his struggle with the detective With a real thrill he saw himself bear his opponent to the ground, then hurl him high and far into the air, to be impaled upon the antlers of an elk's head suspended back of the bar. He saw himself lightly dust his sleeves after this feat, and turn aside with the words, "'That's one lodge he can join.' Then followed a scene he had not been allowed to witness. There swung Marcel, the detective, played too emphatically by the cross-eyed man." An antler point suspended him by the seat of his trousers. He hung limply a moment, then took from his pocket a saw with which he reached up to contrive his release. He sawed through the antler and fell. He tried to stand erect, but appeared to find this impossible. A subtitle announced he had put a permanent wave in Marcel. This base fooling was continuously blown upon by gales of stupid laughter. But not yet did Merton Gill know the worst. The merriment persisted through his most affecting bit, the farewell to his old pal outside. How could they have laughed at a simple bit of pathos like that? But the watching detective was seen to weep bitterly. "'Look him, do him Buck Benson!' urged the hoarse neighbour gleefully. "'You gotta hand it to that kid. Say, who is he, anyway?' followed the thrilling leap from a second-story window to the back of the waiting-pal. The leap began thrillingly, but not only was it shown that the escaping man had donned a coat and a false moustache in the course of his fall, but at its end he was revealed slowly, very slowly, clambering into the saddle. They had used here, he saw, one of those slow cameras that seemed to suspend all action interminably— a cruel device in this instance, and for his actual escape, when he had ridden the horse beyond camera range at a safe walk, they had used another camera that gave the effect of intense speed. The old horse had walked, but with an air of swiftness that caused the audience intense delight. Entered Marcel, the detective, in another scene Merton had not watched— He emerged from the dance-hall to confront a horse that remained, an aged counterpart of the horse Merton had ridden off. Marcel stared intently into the beast's face, whereupon it reared and plunged as if terrified by the spectacle of the cross-eyed man. Merton recalled the horse in the village that seemed to act so intelligently. Probably a shotgun had stimulated the present scene. The detective thereupon turned aside, hastily donned his false mustache and Sherlock Holmes cap, and the deceived horse now permitted him to mount. He, too, walked off to the necromancy of a lens that multiplied his pace a thousandfold, and the audience rocked in its seats. One horse still remained before the dance-hall. The old mother emerged. With one anguished look after the detective, she gathered up her disreputable skirts and left the platform in a flying leap to land in the saddle. There was no trickery about the speed at which her horse, belabored with the mop-pail, galloped in pursuit of the others. A subtitle recited, "'She has watched her dear ones leave the old nest flat. Now she must go out over the hills and mop the other side of them.' Now came the sensational capture by lasso of the detective. But the captor had not known that, as he dragged his quarry at the rope's end, the latter had somehow possessed himself of a sign which he later walked in with, a sign reading, "'Join the Good Roads Movement,' nor that the faithful old mother had ridden up to deposit her inverted mop-pail over his head. Merton Gill had twice started to leave. He wanted to leave but each time he found himself chained there by the evil fascination of this monstrous parody. He remained to learn that the Montague girl had come out to the great open spaces to lead a band of train robbers from the Q.T. ranch. He saw her ride beside a train and cast her lasso over the stack of the locomotive. He saw her pony settle back on its haunches while the rope grew taut and the train was forced to halt. He saw the passengers lined up by the wayside, and forced to part with their valuables. Later, when the band returned to the ranch with their booty, he saw the dissolute brother, after the treasure was divided, winning it back to the family coffers with his dice. He saw the stricken father playing golf on his bicycle in grotesque imitation of a polo-player and still, so incredible the revealment, he had not, in the first shock of it, seemed to consider Baird in any way to blame. Baird had somehow been deceived by his actors. Yet a startling suspicion was forming amid his mental flurries, a suspicion that bloomed to certainty when he saw himself the ever-patient victim of the genuine Hidalgo Spurs. Baird had said he wanted the close-ups merely for use in determining how the spurs could be mastered, yet here they were. Gill caught the spurs in undergrowth, and caught them in his own chaps, arising from each fall with a look of gentle determination that appealed strongly to the throng of lackwits. They shrieked at each of his failures, even when he ran to greet his pictured sweetheart and fell headlong. They found the comedy almost unbearable when at Baird's direction he had begun to toe in as he walked. And he had fallen clumsily again when he flew to that last glad rendezvous, where the pair were irised out in a love triumphant, while the old mother mopped a large rock in the background. An intervening close-up of this rock revealed her tearful face as she cleansed the granite surface. Above her loomed a painted exhortation to— "'Use wizard spine-pills.' "'And of this pathetic old creature he was made to say, "'even as he clasped the Beloved in his arms, "'Remember, she is my mother. "'I will not desert her now, just because I am rich and grand.' "'At last he was free. "'Amid applause that was long and sincere, "'he gained his feet and pushed away out. "'His hoarse neighbor was saying, "'Who is the kid, anyway? Ain't he a wonder?' He pulled his hat down, dreading he might be recognized and shamed before these shallow fools. He froze with the horror of what he had been unable to look away from—the ignominy of it—and now, after those spurs, he knew full well that Baird had betrayed him. As the words shaped in his mind, a monstrous echo of them reverberated through its caverns. The Montague girl had betrayed him. He understood her now, and burned with memories of her uneasiness the night before. She had been suffering acutely from remorse. She had sought to cover it with pleas of physical illness. At the moment he was conscious of no feeling toward her, save wonder that she could so coolly have played him false. But the thing was not to be questioned. She and Baird had made a fool of him. As he left the theatre, the crowd about him commented approvingly on the picture. "'Who's the new comedian?' he heard a voice inquire. "'But ain't he a wonder?' seemed to be the sole reply. He flushed darkly. So they thought him a comedian. "'Well, Baird wouldn't think so. Not after tomorrow. He paused outside the theatre now to study the lithograph in colours. There he hurled Marcel to the antlers of the elk. The announcement was— "'Hearts on Fire, a Jeff Baird comedy. five reels, five hundred laughs. "'Baird,' he sneeringly reflected, "'had kept faith with his patrons, "'if not with one of his actors. "'But how had he profaned the sunlit glories "'of the great open West and its virile drama? "'And the spurs, as he had promised "'the unsuspecting wearer, had stood out. "'The horror of it, blinding, desolating.' and he had as good as stolen that money himself, taking it out to the great open spaces to spend in a barroom. Baird's serious effort had turned out to be a wild, inconsequent farrago of the most painful nonsense. But it was over for Merton Gill. The golden bowl was broken, the silver cord was loosed. Tomorrow he would tear up Baird's contract and hurl the pieces in Baird's face. As to the Montague girl— that deceiving jade was hopeless never again could he trust her in a whirling daze of resentment he boarded a car for the journey home a group seated near him still laughed about hearts on fire i thought he'd kill me with those spurs declared an otherwise sanely behaving young woman that hurt embarrassed look on his face every time he'd get up he cowered in his seat and he remembered another ordeal he must probably face when he reached home. He hoped the Pattersons would be in bed, and walked up and down before the gate when he saw the house still alight. But the light stayed, and at last he nerved himself for a possible encounter. He let himself in softly, still hoping he could gain his room undiscovered, but Mrs. Patterson framed herself in the lighted door of the living room and became exclamatory at the sight of him and he who had thought to stand before these people in shame to receive their condolences now perceived that his trial would be of another but hardly less distressing sort for somehow so dense were these good folks that he must seem to be not displeased with his own performance amazingly they congratulated him struggling with reminiscent laughter as they did so and you never told us you was one of them funny comedians chided mrs patterson "'We thought you was just a beginner, and here you got the biggest part in the picture. "'Say, the way you acted when you'd pick yourself up after them spurs threw you? "'I'll wake up in the night laughing at that.' "'And the way he kept his face so straight when them other funny ones was cutting their capers all around him,' observed Mr. Patterson. "'Yes, wasn't it wonderful, Jed, the way he never let on, keeping his face as serious as if he'd been in a serious play?' I like to fell off my seat," added mr Patterson. "I tell you something, mr Armitage," began mrs Patterson with a suddenly serious manner of her own, "I never been one to flatter folks to their faces unless I felt it from the bottom of my heart. I never been that kind. When I tell a person such and such about themselves they can take it for the truth's own truth. So you can believe me now. I saw lots of times in that play to night when you was even funnier than the cross eyed man. The young actor was regarding her strangely. Seemingly he wished to acknowledge this compliment, but could find no suitable words. "'Yes, you can blush and hem and haw,' went on his critic, "'but any one knows me, I'll tell you I mean it when I talk that way. "'Yes, sir, funnier than the cross-eyed man himself. "'My, I guess the neighbours'll be talking soon's they've found out we got someone as important as you be in our spare room.' and, Mr. Armitage, I want you to give me a signed photograph of yourself, if you'll be so good. He escaped at last, dizzy from the maelstrom of conflicting emotions that had caught and whirled him. It had been impossible not to appear, and somehow difficult not to feel gratified under this heartfelt praise. He had been bound to appear pleased but incredulous, even when she pronounced him superior at times to the cross-eyed man though the word she used was funnier. Betrayed by his friends, stricken, disconsolate, in a panic of despair, he had yet seemed glad to hear that he had been funny. He flew to the sanctity of his room. Not again could he bear to be told that the acting which had been his soul's high vision was a thing for merriment. He paced his room a long time, a restless, defenseless victim to recurrent visions of his shame. Implacably they returned to torture him. Reel after reel of the ignoble stuff, spawned by the miscreant Baird, flashed before him, a world of base-painted shadows in which he had been the arch-offender. Again and again he tried to make clear to himself just why his own acting should have caused mirth. Surely he had been serious. He had given the best that was in him. And the groundlings had guffawed. Perhaps it was a puzzle he would never solve. And now he first thought of the new piece. This threw him into a fresh panic. What awful things, with his high and serious acting, would he have been made to do in that? Patiently, one by one, he went over the scenes in which he had appeared. Dazed, confused, his recollection could bring to him little that was ambiguous in them. But also, he had played through hearts on fire with little suspicion of its low intentions. He went to bed at last, though to toss another hour in fruitless effort to solve this puzzle and to free his eyes of those flashing infamies of the night. Ever and again, as he seemed to become composed, free at last of tormenting visions, a mere subtitle would flash in his brain, as where the old mother, when he first punished her insulter, was made by the screen to call out, Kick him on the kneecap, too! But the darkness refreshed his tired eyes, and sun at last brought him a merciful outlet from a world in which you could act your best and still be funnier than a cross eyed man. He awakened long past his usual hour and occupied his first conscious moments in convincing himself that the scandal of the night before had not been a bad dream. The shock was a little dulled now. He began absurdly to remember the comments of those who had appeared to enjoy the unworthy entertainment. Undoubtedly many people had mentioned him with warm approval, but such praise was surely nothing to take comfort from. He was aroused from this retrospection by a knock on his door. It proved to be Mr. Patterson bearing a tray." Mrs. P. thought that you being up so late last night maybe would like a cup of coffee and a bite of something before you went out. The man's manner was newly respectful. In this house, at least, Merton Gill was still someone. He thanked his host and consumed the coffee and toast with a novel sense of importance. The courtesy was unprecedented. Mrs. Patterson had indeed been sincere, and scarcely had he finished dressing when Mr. Patterson was again at the door." "'A gentleman downstairs to see you, Mr. Armitage. "'He says his name is Walberg, but you don't know him. "'He says it's a business matter.' "'Very well, I'll be down.' "'A business matter? "'He had no business matters with anyone except Baird. "'He was smitten with a quick and quite illogical fear. "'Perhaps he would not have to tear up that contract "'and hurl it in the face of the manager who had betrayed him. "'Perhaps the manager himself would do the tearing.' Perhaps Baird, after seeing the picture, had decided that Merton Gill would not do. Instantly he felt resentful. Hadn't he given the best that was in him? Was it his fault if other actors had turned into farce one of the worthwhile things? He went to meet Mr. Wahlberg with this resentment so warm that his greeting of the strange gentleman was gruff and short. The caller, an alert businesslike man, came at once to his point— he was it proved not the representative of a possibly repenting baird he was on the contrary representing a rival producer he extended his card the biggert comedies i got your address from the Holden office mr armitage i guess i routed you out of bed eh well it's like this if you ain't sewed up with baird yet the biggert people would like to talk a little business to you how about it "'Business?' Mr. Armitage fairly exploded this. He was unhappy and puzzled, in consequence unamiable. "'Sure, business,' confirmed Mr. Walberg. "'I understand you just finished another five-reeler for the Buckeye outfit, but how about some stuff for us now? We can give you as good a company as that one last night and a good line of comedy. We got a gag man that simply never gets to the end of his string.' He's doping out something right now that would fit you like a glove, and, say, it would be a great idea to kind of specialize in that spur act of yours. That got over big. We could work it in again. An act like that's good for a million laughs.' Mr. Armitage eyed Mr. Wahlberg coldly. Even Mr. Wahlberg felt an extensive area of glaciation setting in. "'I wouldn't think of it,' said the actor, still gruffly. "'Do you mean that you can't come to the bigot at all, on any proposition?' "'That's what I mean,' confirmed Mr. Armitage. "'Would three hundred and fifty a week interest you?' "'No,' said Mr. Armitage, though he gulped twice before achieving it. Mr. Walberg reported to his people that this Armitage lad was one hard-boiled proposition. He'd seen lots of them in his time, but this bird was a wonder.' Yet Mr. Armitage was not really so granitic of nature as the bigot emissary had thought him. He had begun the interview with a smouldering resentment due to a misapprehension. He had been outraged by a suggestion that the Spurs be again put to their offensive use, and he had been stunned by an offer of three hundred and fifty dollars a week. That was all. Here was a new angle to the puzzles that distracted him. He was not only praised by the witless, but he had been found desirable by certain discerning overlords of filmdom. What could be the secret of a talent that caused people, after viewing it but once, to make reckless offers? And another thing. Why had he allowed Baird to sew him up? The Montague girl again occupied the foreground of his troubled musings. She, with her airs of wise importance, had helped to sew him up she was a helpless thing after all and false of nature he would have matters out with her this very day but first he must confront baird in a scene of scorn and reprobation on the car he became aware that far back in remote caverns of his mind there ran a teasing memory of some book on the shelves of the simsbury public library he was sure it was not a book he had read it was merely the title that hid itself only this had ever interested him, and it but momentarily. So much he knew. A book's title had lodged in his mind, remained there, and was now curiously stirring in some direct relation to his present perplexities. But it kept its face averted. He could not read it. Vaguely he identified the nameless book with Tessie Kearns. He could not divine how, because it was not her book, and he had never seen it except on the library shelf. The nameless book persistently danced before him. He was glad of this. It kept him at moments from thinking of the loathly Baird. End of chapter 18